Back in 2018, I, I had something very surprising happen to me. I had an appendectomy for the second time. Usually doctors remove all of it the first time, but uh, these doctors left a little bit for me, and so it became infected again. Surprise. So for my experience with this last year, my stomach uh, kind of felt a little funny on a Sunday afternoon, and the pain just kind of kept intensifying throughout the day. Uh, I thought it was a stomach bug that would eventually pass. Never dawned on me that it might be my appendix again. Sunday night was pretty rough, and then early Monday morning, I decided to stop trying to be Mr. Tough Guy and to go to the emergency room. The pain once there kicked in even more. It hurt so bad just to take even a normal breath that I had to start taking a lot of small little breaths, and I did that so much that I was hyperventilating I still remember my hands clenching up. I couldn't unfold them because I was hyperventilating. I was in a bad spot, probably the worst pain I had ever experienced. At that point, I was powerless to change the situation. There was nothing I could do. I needed other people to help me. I needed other people to help me out of this circumstance. Thankfully, they did, and I received that help, and hopefully they removed all of my appendix this time. Third time would not be the charm. But that idea of rescuing the powerless out of a difficult situation encapsulates the idea of redemption. Let me repeat that. The redemption is the idea of rescuing the powerless out of a difficult situation. As you explore Scripture, God is the Redeemer like no other. We read about how He redeems people out of weakness, poverty, enemies, violence, and even death. God even redeemed an entire nation, didn't he? The nation of Israel, kind of the paradigm example of redemption. The Lord told Moses to tell the nation of Israel in Exodus 6.6, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will what? Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God... Redeems, And not only does he personally redeem, but he also enacted laws in the Old Testament whereby others would redeem other people, right? Other people would help others get out of those difficult situations. We're going to see that reality today in our passage from the book of Ruth, which focuses on redemption. And redemption really lies at the heart of the book of Ruth. 23 times you see the words redeem, redemption, or redeemer. It's really the heartbeat of the book of Ruth, and it comes to the front here this morning. And also, we're going to see that Ruth, we do see redemption in Ruth, but it points to an even greater redemption that's found in Jesus and what he did for his people. It's going to be a great message focusing on the redemption of 
the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So please turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to continue our series on this wonderful book, page 223. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. Just a quick recap. In chapter 1, a woman named Naomi traveled from uh, Bethlehem with her family to the country of Moab because there was a famine in the land of Israel. While there in Moab, her husband died. Her two sons who were with her as they stayed in Moab married Moabite women. They were there about 10 years. The husbands died, so Naomi was only left with her two daughters-in-law. She urged them to return home because she thought they had a better chance of marrying there in their homeland than going back as Gentiles to Israel. One daughter-in-law returned to Moab, but the other one named Ruth vowed that she would stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Why did she do that? Because God was her God, right? She had believed in the Lord, and her people, Naomi's people, were now her people. Well, Naomi heard these things, but she was still very bitter inside. She thought that she faced a harsh existence in the future Having no husband and this particular time and no sons, she was looking at a, an existence of a harsh existence, having to depend upon the kindness of others to survive. So she was bitter. Chapter 2, Ruth decided once they had arrived in Bethlehem to glean in the fields after the barley harvest. By the kind providence of God, as we saw last time we were in Ruth, she just happened to go into the field of a man named Boaz. We saw that that wasn't just luck, was it? That was the providence of God. Because Boaz was a worthy man, spoke about his character. He was generous, and he showed respect toward Ruth. He gave her an abundant supply of food to take back to Naomi and told her to come back to his fields where she would be safe. When Ruth returned home, she told Naomi of the good news, and Naomi added that Boaz was not just a nice man, but he was also a redeemer. Again, we're going to focus on that here this morning. So the first part of our passage here in chapter 3 is the bold plan of Naomi. The bold plan of Naomi. Let's read verses 1 to 5 in Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say... I will do. So some time had elapsed between when they first met, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, I read one person who said probably about six to eight weeks had elapsed because now was the end of the wheat harvest, okay? So at this time, Naomi expresses that she wants Ruth to have rest, meaning she wanted Ruth to marry, and she has someone in mind. She wanted her to marry Boaz. He was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. They were of the same clan, though the exact relationship is not specified. 
Now, we need to ask why Naomi pointed to Boaz and their family connection, right? What's going on there that's that's so important? Well, when the Lord gave Israel the promised land, the 12 tribes divided up the land, didn't they? And whatever inheritance you received, that was going to be your land forever, right? You didn't trade around the land. You didn't, you know, swap lands or sell it. That was your land that you were to keep forever. So the land was incredibly important to them. God had given it to them, and they were to hold on to that land. Now, by this time in the day of Ruth, they had had this property for centuries, right? So you can only imagine how important it was for Naomi to hold on to that land. Now, We all know that things happen in life, right? Where you might have to give up that land, things would happen. And so the Lord made provisions for people to hold on to that land by way of the kindness of redeemers or family members who would care for those who were going through hard times. A couple of examples. One would be a case of financial hardship. In the case of destitution, a family relative would provide assistance so that the family would keep their land. Leviticus 25, 25 says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. You see how that word redeem is used there? To help this person who's in financial hardship. Another case would be if there were no children. In this instance, the husband dies and there is no children. The family was at risk of losing their land. In such cases, a brother of the deceased husband would marry the widow so that the family line and the land would continue. You find this discussed in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's what's sometimes called leverite marriage. Ever heard of that term before? comes from the Latin word lever, which meant, uh, uh, let me get that right, (laughs) brother-in-law, brother-in-law. Now, when we hear this, it strikes us as strange, but let's keep in mind the context, shall we? This was the promised land that they were to keep. They were to maintain this land, right? Scripture speaks in other places about the importance of romantic love, but here for the nation of Israel at this time, they wanted to hold on to that land, didn't they? And for that ancestry to continue on. So in this instance, Ruth and Naomi, they kind of fit both situations. They were experiencing financial hardship, and they needed the family line to continue on. They needed someone to help, a redeemer. Before moving on, let me just say one thing. Last month, we were in our series called The Greatest Story, talking about the Bible. And if you recall, I said when we're reading the Bible, we need to make sure that we read it as a story, right, from beginning to end, where there's development along the story of the Bible, right? You can't just take one passage per se, and it applies everywhere all the time. And this would be a case here because these covenants and so forth, they build on one another. And this is a great example here with Ruth. They were living in this time where these Redeemer commands under the Mosaic covenant for the nation of Israel. And so for Ruth and Naomi, they were looking to these laws to live by. Now that we are under the new covenant, you might ask yourself, so is this still applicable? No, it's not applicable. So, for example, if you are married and your husband dies and you have no children, you're not obligated to then go marry his brother. Because though, 
I was, whatever. <laughs> whatever. And it's not just a random thing here. This was understood by the New Testament writers. Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, he says he upholds the importance and significance of being single. Because then you can focus on serving the Lord with a whole complete devotion. He would have never said that under the old covenant. Do you see the difference? So that's why you have to read the Bible according to where it's at in the story. But going back to Ruth, this is where they were at. They needed a redeemer. And so Naomi devises this bold plan. She wants Ruth to go to Boaz at the threshing floor. Say, what was the threshing floor? Here's a picture of what it might have looked like. It was an area, often outside, hard, flat area, where animals and people would trample on the grain to loosen it, and then they would get winnowing forks, and they would throw it up in the air. The wind would blow away the chaff, and the grain would stay at the bottom there on the ground, and they would pile it up. So these breezes kicked in after sundown, and that's when Boaz was going to be hanging out. You also read that uh, Naomi tells Ruth, you know, you might want to wash up, kind of spiffy up a little bit, go anoint yourself with some oil. And then he also tells her, interestingly, to go put on a cloak. Why does he do that? Why does she do that? I think it was to disguise herself until it was the right time. When she arrives at the threshing floor, Ruth was told to let Boaz finish eating and drinking and let him lie down for sleep. Then Ruth was to uncover his feet. Then she was to lie down, and Boaz would tell her what to do. I know some of you are thinking, what on earth was going on there? Why would she uncover his feet? Well, actually, Ruth's actions were a marriage proposal. They were a marriage proposal. It's not a biblical commandment, but it was a cultural practice of the time to do it that way. So she was going to propose that Boaz marry her. This was a very bold plan. Very bold. Men typically made the marriage proposal in this time. And plus, Ruth was a poor Gentile woman. Boaz was this older, rich landowner. But this was the plan. By the way, I do believe others were around in this situation. And that's why... Uh, Naomi told Ruth to make sure, see where he goes and lies down. She didn't want to uncover the wrong guy's feet. (laughs) That may not have been good. So I think there were others around this place. So what does Ruth make of it? She agrees to it. She's all in. Now, in this culture, obviously, there was a high regard for elders. But this woman, Ruth was a grown woman at this time. I don't think she had to do this, but she wanted to do so. So she's going to go ahead with this part of this bold plan. So let's go to the second part and see what on earth is going to happen in this passage. So the second part is Ruth asked Boaz to marry her. Let's read verses 6 to 9 together. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let me stop there. 
A lot going on. So Ruth goes to the threshing floor. Boaz eats and drinks. He lays down at his end of the pile of grain. And when he fell asleep, Ruth does this. She goes and she uncovers his feet. And then she lays down. At midnight, Boaz wakes up. He's startled, maybe because his feet are uncovered and no breeze is going in. His feet are cold or something. But he wakes up. He sees a woman lying at his feet, and he asks who she is. You might say, well, how did he know? Well, remember, it would have been dark there, right? I mean, you wouldn't have seen a whole lot. She says it is Ruth. And then she says in verse 10, she makes this very important request. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. If you've been paying attention, you know that her words were no accident. When they first met, Boaz said to her in verse 10 of chapter, or chapter 2, he said to her, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Boaz said this to her, Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So when they first met, Boaz prayed that she would find refuge under the Lord's wings, just like a mother bird would protect her chicks, Right? Ruth uses those words back to Boaz, almost in a sense like, you prayed that this would happen to me. I'm asking that you be the fulfillment of your own prayer. Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You might be praying for something, and then God starts burdening you that actually you're the answer to the prayer you've been praying She wanted that to happen. She hoped that Boaz would be the answer to his own prayer and would protect her and Naomi with marriage. So what is Boaz going to respond to? What is he going to say? Verse 10 and 11, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Boaz doesn't explicitly say yes. But I think he's very interested. Now, nothing has been mentioned so far of any kind of romantic connection between Ruth and Boaz. This week I got a kick out of a children's story that someone donated to the church. And it retells the story of Ruth kind of adds in a few humorous elements along the way. So they kind of reimagined that when Boaz first met Ruth, he really liked her a lot. And so he went home and started spiffing up himself. And they have a picture of him standing in front of his sink, combing his hair. And he's got a spray can that says camel odor remover. <laughs> so that's not in the Bible, but it was pretty funny little ad lib there. So no clear indication of any romantic interest. But judging by Boaz's quick response, I think there might have been something there. But let's understand what Boaz says. To start, he prayed that blessing over her for her actions, right? Then he mentions that this act was kinder than the first. What's he talking about? He's talking about how Ruth was so kind to follow Naomi back to Israel. That was incredibly kind and sacrificial. But now he's saying, this is even more kind that you do this. Because I think he's pointing to the fact that she needed redemption. And he saw that. 
She wasn't just chasing after a younger guy who might have been maybe more attractive or maybe would have been in a better position just age-wise to provide a family for Ruth. By the way, we're never told the ages of Boaz and Ruth. He calls her my daughter, which obviously indicates that she was younger than him. But I don't know that, that Boaz was an elderly man because he was sitting there on his own grain pile protecting it. In other words, if a thief came at night, Boaz was ready to fight for his grain, okay? So I don't know that he was kind of hobbling around, but he was probably, I would guess, maybe 10 or 20 years older than Ruth. She's probably in her 20s or so. Boaz assures her not to fear. He will do all that she asks. Why? What does it say there? All the town knows that she is a worthy woman. That word worthy was the same, used, same word used of Boaz back, to, back in chapter 2, verse 1. Ruth had excellent character. File that away for a couple minutes because it will come back. But there is a big monkey wrench that they got to deal with. Verses 12 and 13, Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz knew that there was a redeemer closer in sort of lineage to Ruth. Okay, so if this man will redeem Ruth, then Boaz says that is fine. If not, he will gladly do so. And he even takes a vow before the Lord to show that he was very serious about this. The scene closes with Ruth or Boaz telling Ruth to stay there the night and then leave in the morning, obviously trying to look out for her safety. Now, before moving on, the question sometimes arises whether something inappropriate happened between Ruth and Boaz. A couple of months ago, uh, my daughter told me that she was reading from this story and it sounded to her, quote, a little sketchy. <laughs> was it sketchy? I don't think it was. I really don't think it was. And let me give you two reasons. First, the godliness of Ruth. She is upheld as a virtuous woman. Her character shines forth in the story. She, just remember, she abandons her country to go live with Naomi. She believes in the Lord. She's out there working those grain fields very hard to provide for her and for Naomi. She is respectful toward Boaz. In just a couple of months, she had developed this incredible reputation around the town where there apparently were other men that were interested in her. Even though she was this new Gentile to the area, she was a very godly woman. In fact, if you were paying attention, even in this scene, she displays her character because she breaks from Naomi's plan. Did you catch that? Naomi told her, go to Boaz, uncover his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. Ruth doesn't even allow that possibility of some kind of premature passion on Boaz's part. As soon as she uncovers his feet and he realizes it, she asks him for a commitment. Before you're going to be a redeemer, she wants commitment from him. She beats him to the punch before anything might develop. She was a very godly woman. 
I think it's far-fetched to think that she would be called this godly woman. She really wasn't. The story would never have been told, right, if she lacked virtue. And this story left a big imprint on the Hebrew Bible. Let me just tell you something that's kind of fascinating. In the book of Proverbs, it closes in chapter 31 with this beautiful poem about the ideal wife. Remember the Proverbs 31 woman? In chapter 31, verse 10, when the passage begins, it says this question, an excellent wife who can find, she is more precious than jewels. That phrase in Proverbs, excellent wife, is the exact same phrase that you see in Ruth about her. And what's even more interesting is that when we look at our English Bible and the Hebrew Bibles, all the books are exactly the same, but there are a few places where they, they order the books differently than we do. We put the book of Ruth after the book of Judges because it's like chronologically there. And the Hebrew Bible, guess what comes after the book of Proverbs? The book of Ruth. In other words, here's this wonderful picture of the ideal wife as Proverbs closes. Then we go to the book of Ruth to show how it is lived out. So again, I don't think Ruth was ungodly in this situation. And also the godliness of Boaz. Like Ruth, he's called worthy. His character shines forth. In chapter 2, when he greets his workers, he blesses them in the name of the Lord. He's incredibly kind and respectful and generous to Ruth. And even at the threshing floor, when, when she makes her proposal, he blesses her in the name of the Lord. And just out of sheer principle, he allows this other redeemer to have first you know, the first legitimate uh, chance at Ruth because that was sort of the custom in the culture, right? He was a godly man. So was this circumstance unusual? Yes. Was it immoral? I don't think so. I think they were a good match, and I would say a godly match. And while I'm on that, let me just give a quick but firm word of exhortation. Establish your marriage on godliness, not on money or looks. Yes, those things play a part, but they are not foundational. And sadly, couples realize that the hard way. Money can vanish. Looks will fade. Wives will get a few wrinkles. Husbands will get furniture disease. You know where their chest drops into their drawers? <laughs> Establish your marriage on godliness. So if you are the, wink, the weaker link in your marriage right now, can I give you a word of exhortation to step up to the plate and start focusing on your spiritual growth in the Lord? That is the most important thing you can give to your spouse. Much more important than a cruise or a piece of jewelry is for you to grow in godliness and to be a blessing to your spouse. 
one other thing. If you are single, let godliness be the main thing that you were looking for. Yes, those other things matter, but let godliness be what matters most. To start, make sure that you are pursuing someone who is a Christian in the first place. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. And to go further, make sure the person is a strong Christian. Make sure that they have a track record of prayer, of scripture reading, serving the church and purity. Don't expect them to start doing those things after they get married to you. Maybe that will happen, but make sure beforehand. When I met my wife, she had some wonderful traits. But it was her love for Christ that mattered most to me. And that has been such a blessing these last 19 years. Establish your marriage on godliness. So let's go to the third part of the passage. Ruth informs Naomi of the good news. Verses 14 to 17. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured, he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So Ruth departs here at dusk so no one could see her. Boaz mentions to another person not to tell others about Ruth being there. Again, it was not something of anything being immoral, but he wanted to protect them both from false accusations. Nothing wrong with that. Before leaving, Boaz gives her an ample supply of grain. It's hard to know for sure exactly how much grain he gave to her, but apparently he gave her a lot. Notice how he had to put it on her. One scholar I read said that it was probably about 80 pounds of grain. She was lugging back to the house there. Now you say, well, why does he... Why mention that detail? Who cares? Well, it would let Naomi know that Boaz was serious about Ruth's proposal. When Ruth arrives home and Naomi asks her how things went, she's going to show all this grain to show that Boaz had good intentions. It may not have been a diamond ring, but it was pretty good to show that he was serious about this. The passage closes with Naomi's comment in verse 18. He says, Or she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Ruth was to leave the matter in Boaz's hands. And knowing Boaz's character, Naomi was confident that he would settle the matter immediately. It's a very interesting story, isn't it? Next week, we're going to see the ending, and you will not be disappointed. The ending is beautiful. It's a great story. And as we're going to see also next week, not only is it a great story, but this story has profound significance for the rest of the Bible. We're going to see how this ties into King David. We're also going to see how this ties into Jesus. Very powerful. Make sure you're here next week for the conclusion of the book of Ruth. Let me close by going back to our theme of redemption. 
Redemption is this idea, again, of rescuing the powerless out of a very difficult situation. God is a redeemer. He redeems individuals from difficult situations. He redeemed Israel from the bondage of Egypt. He implemented laws in the Old Testament to help people be redeemed out of difficult circumstances, like we saw here with Ruth. But all of these truths point to the greatest redemption, the redemption of Christ. Christ the Redeemer. Good name for a church, right? Christ the Redeemer. Let's be reminded of why this is such a good name for a church. Christ came to redeem people from their sins. You say, why do we need redemption? Well, we are powerless to save ourselves. We all have sinned and stand before a just and righteous God. Yes, we have done good things, but the key issue is that we have done bad things. We've thought bad things. We've said bad things. And we stand guilty before a righteous and holy God who will punish those sins for the rest of eternity. We cannot save ourselves, or why would Jesus come to this earth? We need someone to redeem us from the penalty of sin and to save us from the judgment of God. Do you see that? You got to see that. Because if you don't see that, then the good news means nothing to you. But there is good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ, who is fully God, became a man and he lived a sinless life. Unlike anybody who has ever lived, even godly people like Ruth and Boaz, they still sin. All of us sin. Jesus was sinless. And so he went to that cross. He did not die for his own death, but he died a substitutionary death to save, to redeem his people. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So, friend, let me ask you, have you been redeemed? Here's a great litmus test. A great litmus, a litmus test is whether you can say, yes, I am guilty before God. And I am powerless to save myself. Let me repeat that. I am guilty before God. And I'm powerless to save myself. That is different than saying, I like to hear about Jesus. He's very interesting. Or I enjoy going to church because I enjoy the singing and meeting people. Or I always feel better after I go to church. All those things are great. But that's not what redemption is about. Redemption is about seeing that you are guilty before God and you cannot save yourself. And that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That you realize that you stand guilty before God and that God loves you so much that he sent someone, his son, to come and live that perfect life, that sinless life, and to die on the cross so that a way is made for you to be saved and to have all of that sin, all those things we we have thought, said, and done, washed away and cleansed. No condemnation before God. But it's not because you're a good person, but it's because Jesus is your redeemer. 
John 3.16 promises, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That has never become a reality in your life. If that litmus test kind of hit home this morning. Trust in the promises of God. Call upon him as your Savior and Redeemer, and he will not disappoint you. He will change your life. And for those who have been redeemed, do you still cherish that redemption? You know, in, in Scripture, redemption often came with a price. For example, a family member who was in debt, someone else would have to pay their debt to free them out of that debt. Think about how grateful that person was, right, when that debt had been paid. I, I was thinking about when, when Angela and I first got married, we had about $20,000 in student loans. You know, student loans, you still have to pay those back, you know. And, and so we declared war on those loans, we live like paupers. I ate so much beans and rice, it made me sick. I ate it all the time. But I did it because we wanted to get out of debt. And even though we were poor seminary students, we did it after two years. But, you know, if someone had come along, say, six months, and I got beans and rice hanging off my face, and I'm so sick of it, if they had said, you know what, hey, I'll write you a check for ten dollars or $15,000, and you're debt-free, if they would have meant it, I would have been jumping up and down, hugging that person, because I would have been so thankful that they had paid my debt. And so it's the same with Jesus. He has paid your debt. We should jump up and down. We should be thankful because not only does he give us an inheritance, say like we saw in the Old Testament, he promises us a new creation that will last forever. He promises not only a name that will go on, but a resurrection body where we never die. That you will spend the rest of eternity with him. We should be rejoicing and deeply grateful and never lose sight of that fact. This past Week was the 25th anniversary of when I became a Christian. God has done wonderful things in my life, and I'm thankful for every single one of them, but none of them replaces the great treasure that I got when on October 23rd, 1994, I bowed my knee and trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Has that happened to you? And have you lost sight of that great joy? First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Let me close with a great quote from Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield. He said, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. There are others, it is true, which are more often on the lips of Christians. The acknowledgement of our submission to Christ as our Lord, the recognition of what we owe to him as our Savior. These things naturally are most frequently expressed in the names we call him by. Redeemer, however, is a title of more intimate revelation than either Lord or Savior. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it costs him to procure this salvation for us. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the name is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Let us cherish that salvation, that redemption.
of the day we die. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Psalm 102, verse, Psalm 107, verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And Lord, we say it here today. Thank you. And we are so grateful for what you have done in Christ. For those of us whose hearts might have grown a little cold and distracted by the cares and concerns of life, may we go back to square one, the foundation of what you have done for us, and kindle that fondness and affection and joy that would crowd out the cares of this life. And Lord, for someone here today who's never received that redemption, I pray that today they would realize they cannot save themselves. They are powerless and that they would admit their sin and come to you humbly and in faith that you will forgive them because that's who you are. May today be the day of redemption, we pray. And God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to hear from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.